Let's take out our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. And we'll be looking at verses 32 to 45. For those brand new to the church, I think it's page 1275 in the Bibles in the pews. I have loved this morning as well. Uh, thank you so much, Anne and Ken and uh, Jeremy and all of you for leading us in this wonderful time of worship. Have you ever noticed that there are certain songs that take on a special meaning for, well, for many, many different reasons? This last one that we sang, Because of you, Who You Are, I just want to weep when I hear it because I think there's a church on the south side of Chicago. It's largely an African-American church that became so precious to Chris and me. It's a church that was so supportive and where I preached and worshipped so often. And this is a song that we often sang together. And um, it's just great to be able to sing it together with my church family here. There are also texts in the Bible that I have found that are so life-changing. And today, folks at Lake Avenue, we are going to look at one that has been, perhaps more than any other one text in the Bible, has become ministry-shaping for me as your pastor. Um, It hit me. I was doing my doctoral work at Cambridge, England, and working on the Gospel of Mark, and I came to this text, and it was one of those times when the Spirit of God spoke so powerfully about what it means to follow Jesus. And that where I would have the opportunity to do what I'm doing now and to be your pastor, that this must be the heart of this. This must be the heart of it. And it's not just true for a pastor. It's true for all of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus. Are you ready to look at it? It's in Mark chapter 10. We'll begin with verse 32. Let's stand because we'll remember that this indeed is our father's word. They, talking about the 12 disciples and other followers were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death And hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But... To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And those of us who have been ransomed say, Thank you, Lord. You may be seated. This is God's Word. A life of worship. That's what we're talking about in these days. A life of worship will be a life of service to other people. Does that make any sense to you? I want you to know, I was a follower of Jesus for a long time, and that didn't make sense to me. It just seemed to be so counter-cultural, so counter-natural to me, that, that to be a follower of Jesus is going to demand that I use whatever he has given me to serve people God loves. Now, who are those people God loves? Who are those people for whom Christ died? Well, look around you, look around you, (laughs) and everybody that God brings across your paths. But once again, I want you to know, as I talk about this up front, this isn't what most people in the world are talking about. So it's not going to come naturally to us, so we must listen carefully. So let's start by thinking about, again, what worship is, what worship is. We talk about it so easily, but I don't know that we understand it. I don't know that I understood it. But, But here, the definition that I'm operating from is this, that worship is the proper response of the whole of our lives to the triune God. When you and I worship, what we do is we ascribe all honor and praise and worth to God precisely because he's worthy. So true worship results in God being at the center of our adoration, but also of our, our actions. In our personal lives and also in our corporate gatherings. All right. So if worship means God is at the center, I'm going to please him. I'm going to do it his way of my actions and my personal life. What does that mean practically? What does that mean practically? And and I'm going to try to convince you that it means that you're going to be committed to a life of serving the people for whom Christ died. We better think about what service is then. So I put up such a simple, maybe too simplistic a definition of service. I'm calling it the use of our God-given, and by this, I'm, I'm trying to convince us that everything we are and have, God has given us. So really, that means anything that you have of our God-given presence in a place, of our God-given position, of our God-given influence, God-given resources, that we're going to use those. To bring benefit and blessing to others. Now I'll tell you. Go to the local bookstore and pull out the self-help books. And it's not going to talk about this. In fact, almost all of them that I've read, and I've read many, many, many of them, really talk about us using whatever we have to further our own, our own goals. That's what leadership is about. Then when you can get to a place of real clout and authority, maybe you can change things a little bit. 
But but here we are saying that possessions are not ours. They're, they're gifts from God, that that the influence that we have as parents, as, as executives, even as as workers is 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 a God given opportunity and a God given place that possessions, presence, position, influence are all God given. And we're to use those to serve others. And when we do, our lives make a positive difference in this world, that this is the way. That we're supposed to live. Now, why am I so convinced of this? That I'm up here ready to talk to you about it. Because this is the way of life of Jesus. Never in history has anybody made as much of a difference in this world as Jesus did. Here we are, Pasadena, California, 21st century, and we are here singing songs about Jesus. Never has anybody had such a positive impact in this world as Jesus had. Never has anybody offered something that is so health-giving, hope-offering to all the people of the world than Jesus. But how did he do it? He did it by serving. Seeing our need and giving all of himself in order to bring us blessing and benefit. Now, when I... um, became the president of the school where I used to be when we had this big inauguration service. Uh, the, the message that was given to me, and those of you who are academics, you'll love this. The title of the talk was The Paradoxical Topography of the Kingdom of God. Doesn't that sound like a good academic title? The Paradoxical Topography of the Kingdom of God. But when you think about it, what it's saying is this, that as God looks at the landscape of this world, his eyes are different from everybody else's. He turns everything on end in the eyes of God. The way up is down. The one who will be the greatest must be willing to serve. The one who will be first must be ready to be last. And that that is exactly what Jesus did. And when we follow him, he sends us into the world to do the same, to use what he's given us to serve those he brings across our paths. Now, I have one little bit of anxiety as I go into this, and that is that you'll think that I have fully uh, that that I've fully embraced this, that I can live it out perfectly. I, I want you to know your pastor is still so much in process with all of this. Uh, I, I, I can resonate with the Apostle Paul, who would say, not that I've arrived yet, but, but I'm pressing on. So I, I want to grow together with you. But I'm convinced that this is the way we're supposed to live because this is how Jesus lived. And I want to show it to you. Do you have your Bible? Whether you carry one or not, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to start. And if you don't, pull out the, um, the Bible in front of you. I think it's page 1260. I think that's where it is. So turn there. Uh, The Gospel of Mark is a beautifully written narrative telling us about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1, the one I want you to see, is the title of the book. It's the title of the book. And as you have it, you will see that it begins this way. This is the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus. The word Gospel means good news. It's the beginning of good news related to Jesus. In other words, what Mark is saying is, when you get finished reading this book... Some good news has begun. When you get to the end of the book, it doesn't look like it's good news. 
Jesus has just died on the cross. And it seemed like all of those who were supposed to carry on his message were afraid. And you wonder if anything's going to happen. But now we know it was good news. It's reached us here, right? So this is the beginning of the good news, and it's about Jesus. Then it tells us two things about him. You see it? Probably your version says about Jesus Christ. And really, that's the Greek word for Messiah. We're going to tell you the good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the one the people of God have been waiting for centuries for. That's who Jesus is. And the second phrase is the Son of God. So you and I, when we open up that book, we know what it's about, right? We know who Jesus is, Messiah and Son of God, the one who's come to transform the world. But when you read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, which I would encourage you to do, you begin to wonder whether any human being is going to understand who he is. They are as dense as rocks. There is a voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father, who says, this is my Son, the one that I am pleased in. You have demons who recognize who Jesus is, but no human being seems to be able to see it. Then the gospel of Mark is told in three scenes, three scenes. Scene number one runs from chapter one, verse two to chapter eight, verse twenty one, one, verse two to eight, verse twenty one. And in that Jesus demonstrates who he is. So if you want to know who Jesus is, you just read that through. And the gospel of Mark does it in rapid fire fashion. In fact, uh, sometimes it's been criticized for that. Tying together one story after another with simple words like, and this happened, and then this happened, and immediately that happened. And what happened was amazing. (laughs) He emerged out of the temptation in the wilderness with the evil one and declares that the reign of God has come. He, He heals the sick, opens the eyes of the blind, changes the lives of a tax collector. He... Uh, raises the dead. He takes a few loaves and fishes and feeds thousands of people. And he doesn't do it just once. He does it twice. And when he taught, people would say, we've never heard anyone teach like this. I'll tell you, everyone should know who he was simply by what he did and how he taught. But when you get to the end of this first scene, chapter 8, verse 21, it ends with this cryptic question. Jesus says, Do you still not understand? Well, they didn't. And so I'll just, as I often say, that means there's hope for you and me. Then when we don't see it all at first, God will be patient. And that's what he does here as well. Scene number one. Scene number three begins in chapter 11, verse one. And it runs to the end of the book. Jesus, this Messiah, this son of God, who's made known who he is, goes to Jerusalem And dies. And dies on a cross. And it seems to be intentional. And it's only when he's on that cross that a human being sees who he is. A centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. Now the section I want to show you, and I think you have to turn to page 1275 to get there, is this middle section. I call it the discipleship section. It runs from chapter 8, verse 22, to chapter 10, verse 52. In that Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. He goes from his home area in Galilee to the north. And he heads relentlessly, intentionally toward Jerusalem. There's one phrase that recurs over and over again. He's on the road. He's on the road. There is a place where he is headed. This section is begun with a blind man being healed. Chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. It ends with another blind man being healed. 
chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. What that says is, first of all, that Jesus could heal the blind, but also there's a metaphorical message here. He is saying that those people who were so blind as, as to who he was would be able to have their eyes opened. And the reason why we are able to see him is because of the work of God. God does miracles in the lives of imperfect people. And so we have the rest of this story. Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. And as he moves, he calls people to follow. As he calls people to follow, he would say, count the cost. I need to let you know what it means to follow me. And three times he tells us why he has come. And I need you to see it. The first is in chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, the favorite word in the Bible for Jesus, the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, though after three days he will rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So after having seen who he was, he says, this is why I have come. I have come because there is a mustness about my coming. And a part of that is I must suffer and I must die. It's very clear. I want you to notice the very next phrase, how people responded to it. Peter, verse 32, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. All right. We can be really hard on Peter here, can't we? Uh, but let's understand that Peter's just this honest one saying what everybody else thought. <laughs> Peter was really saying, Jesus, you know, up to now, we've really liked all these miracles. They're great. And the teaching, that's been pretty good, too. But this suffering and death stuff, we don't like that as much. So let's put that to the side and let's get back to the miracles so that we can go to Jerusalem. You can set up your reign and we can be close to you. That's what he, he rebukes Jesus. Saying what you're doing is not a good idea. That's not how to make a difference in this world. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Peter, you are wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, in the strongest language that you find in the entire New Testament, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And they're the meaning adversary. You're standing against the very thing that God is going to do to make a difference in this world. Peter, you're not thinking the way that God thinks. You don't have in mind the things of God. You're thinking just the way everybody in this world who needs help. You're thinking the things of men. And he began to continue to teach. This is so clear, isn't it? So clear. Surely they get it, right? Chapter 9. Second time. Verse 30. It's always easy to find these places. Chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 30. All right. They, the disciples, left one place. They passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Okay. So he said to them for the second time, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, though after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So for a second time, with great clarity, this is why I have come. Notice the very next verse. The irony of this. Verse 33. So they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them. Now, <clears throat> I saw you arguing back there. What were you arguing about along the road? 
But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about which one of them was going to be the greatest. The Messiah, Son of God, has said, I've come to suffer. I've come to die. It, it must happen. And all they can care about is which one of us is going to become the greatest. When, when you get to Jerusalem, that, that's what we want to know. And what does Jesus do? You can read the rest of it. But he takes a little child from among them. And children were not as respected and revered in the first century as they are in 21st century America. You need to know that. They were symbols of humility. People who had no clout in society. He took a little child and he says, listen to me. Unless you become like this child, you will not even see the kingdom of God. Surely they get it. Surely they get it. Chapter 10, verse 32. I read this to you earlier, but now in the light of what is happening, you'll see it just takes on completely different meaning with, with greater specificity than he has engaged in before. They were on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus was leading. Disciples, as always, astonished. Others afraid. Pulls the twelve aside. Says, this is what's going to happen. We are going to Jerusalem. And you need to know this. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. And when that happens, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and they will kill him. Though three days later, he will rise. Notice the very next verse. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Name it and claim it. Follow him and you can just get him to do whatever you want all for your benefit. We want you to do for us whatever you ask. Can't you feel the exasperation as Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want to ask me to do for you? Well, we want one of us to sit on your right and the other one to sit on your left. When you get there to Jerusalem and you set up your kingdom, we want the greatest places of authority. You don't even know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink here? He's metaphorically talking about the death he's going to experience. Can you be baptized with, namely identify with the baptism I am going to be identified with? My life is going to invite, involve suffering and death. Can you do so glibly? We can. Of course we can. Just, just who's going to be on your right and your left when you get there? And do you notice the other ten become indignant? And you know why, don't you? Because James and John had gotten to him first. They're going to get positions one and two. The best left for them would be three to twelve. Jesus calls them together. Uh, some of you know because you've heard me talk about this. I call it the hammer blow of the Gospel of Mark. This is the part that was so life-shaping for me. Uh, Jesus says, listen, you know the world that you live in. And it feels to me when I read this as if he's talking to a 21st century world. You know the world that we live in. That those who are, are the rulers in this world, they, they use their authority to lord things over other people. To use people for their own benefit. Does it sound like he's talking to us today? To corporate America? And when they have authority, they use that to... Exercise clout over others. Keep other people under so that those other people will work so that the one who's in the leadership position gets all the benefit. 
And then this powerful word. Not so with you. I say, I felt that. I felt that. If, if, if I'm going to claim to be a follower of Jesus and be in any place where there is an opportunity for influence, not so with you. Uh, don't you think that that word transcends the ages and hits us here this morning as we gather? If you're going to claim to be a follower of Jesus, our lives are going to be fundamentally different from the world. Not so with you. For even the Son of Man, this Messiah, the Son of God, did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Hallelujah, right? And not only did he preach it, he did it. Chapter 11, verse 1, after healing a man, he goes into Jerusalem and he gives his life to offer hope to those of us who have gathered here today. And if we will follow him, it seems to me that one of the implications of this is we're going to be committed to a life of service. All right. I've thought about us as a church family. And so I jotted down four. I need to get to my notes here. There we go. Do you ever wonder what I have written on these notes? Sometimes I go back and say, why did I forget that part? But four things that I want to say to us as a, as a community, as a congregation. Number one, I've been concerned about this. I want you to know that biblically, a life of service is not a life of weakness. But it is a life of strength. It's not using what we have to lord it over, but we still use the authority that we have to lead and to do whatever God would call us to do. Do you know why I say this? Because so many times when I hear about us being called to be servants... It seems like the people think that that means that, that we don't exercise strength. We don't confront what is wrong. That when there is error or evil in our family or in our church, we don't deal with it. That, that if we're in a leadership role, we don't use that to do things that are positive. Instead, we just kind of let everybody do what they want. Do you see that that's not what Jesus did? I've tried to make that so clear. When, when Peter was wrong and would have subverted the very eternal work of God... In the strongest language in the Bible, Jesus let him know. It was for Peter's benefit. You you know that, don't you? If Jesus had not died on that cross, there would have been no hope for Peter, much less you and me. Uh, When the disciples were wrong, he called them together to set them right. So so service is not a life of weakness. But it's always having our eyes on what our best For those we are called to serve. Also, it means that when God entrusts to us a leadership role, it's not that we just kind of pull back and don't exert any authority whatsoever. Jesus, in all the books about leadership, I read about strategic planning and setting vision. All of the things that are written about, Jesus does well. He tells people where he is headed. We are going to Jerusalem. He tells them what is going to happen I'm going to have to die in that place and suffer in that place. He lets them know it's not going to be the end. I will rise again. He calls people to follow him. And he lets them know what it's going to cost to do. So all of those things that you have to do if you're going to lead well. But he does it for the benefit of others. Not for himself. Uh, Is that clear to you? That a life of service to which the Lord Jesus calls us, 
is not a life of weakness. In fact, I think it is a life of great strength. Strength of character. Strength of compassion. A strength that will make a difference in this world. Second lesson I just want to give to us. It's so self-evident that I, I still think I, I need to say it. The second lesson that I see is that this life of service is not a life focused on self-advancement. But it's focused on the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God. Jesus' description of why he has come. By that, to bring God's reign into this world. When everybody in this world is living for themselves, we bring God's ways. When we look at one another and divide one another by age, by, by race or ethnicity, gender, all these things that are coming out in our political debates, you and I are, are coming to say, let us see as God sees. We want to bring the kingdom of God. We don't look for ourselves We want to advance the kingdom of God. One of the things that has struck me so powerfully about this is chapter 8, verse 31. I tried to emphasize this as I spoke. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, and must be killed. See, this wasn't just something that was outside of Jesus' control. There was divine necessity about this. He came because there was an eternal work That was to be done so that even Jesus, as Philippians 2 says, though he is in very nature, God did not consider that equality with God something he had to hold on to, but was willing to empty himself and become a servant for you and me, even to the point of the cross. Even Jesus submitted to the will of his father to further this eternal work of salvation and rescue and hope for us. And it, it indicates to me. That wherever God puts us, we are always going to be people who are under his authority. And so our goal isn't to advance my mission. Uh, It it often troubles me when I listen to Christian radio or Christian television, when people talk about giving to my ministry. It is not my ministry. It is not my church. It is his ministry and his church. So that when we we give our lives to Christ, it is not going to be a life lived for self-advancement but ultimately for the kingdom of God. And what that means is that we're going to want to do what God does, which is show the love of God for the world for which Jesus died. It's not a life of self-advancement. It's advancing what God is doing in the world. Third, all right, I have to tell you this because Jesus always told people this. A life of service is not easy, but it is good. And by good, I'm using it in the biblical sense of goodness, which is the way things ought to be. We look around our world and we see things that are not the way they ought to be. People in poverty, people who are hurting, people who are struggling educationally. We say that's not the way that it should be. A life of service to try to serve and bring blessing and benefit into such a world is not going to be easy. But it's going to introduce goodness into this world and... I'll tell you, it'll make your own life come alive. Make your own life come alive. Um, I say this because, once again, a servant, especially when it comes into the life of the church, is often thought of as, well, that's a person who's going to make sure that he never rocks the boat. If you have a pastor who's going to be a servant, then if there are things happening in the church that need to be confronted, he'll be afraid to address that issue or talk about that thing or address that problem because it will somehow wreck the peace. Um, is, is that what Jesus did? 
Let me tell you, Jesus was not into a life of peacekeeping. By, by, by peacekeeping, that means just trying to smooth it over and not have it become a problem. He was committed to a life of peacemaking. And there's all the difference in the world between peacemaking and peacekeeping, isn't there? I'll tell you, peacemaking is hard if you've ever engaged in it. Have you ever had two people in your family and your friendship who are really in opposition to one another? And you were there trying to bring about reconciliation? Have you ever noticed that neither person is happy? All they want you to do is to take their side. Isn't that true? The answer is yes. I'll just tell you, the answer is yes. The peacemaker, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, brings persecution along with him. So it's hard. It's not easy to serve in a way that brings God's goodness into this world. And for Jesus to serve you and me with the depth of our need meant in that, in that phrase that I will never get away from, the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life. That's not easy. Because when Jesus spoke about his mission, very few embraced it. When Jesus went to the cross, he went alone. And yet at the end of the day, we are here because of what he did. I just want to tell you that when you truly become a follower of Jesus, it may not be easy. I don't know what it will involve. I really don't. But I do know this. It will be good. It will be good. Finally, last point I want to make. is that a life of service is the life that makes a transformational difference in this world. If you want your life to count. And I, I, our lives go by so quickly, don't they? I can't believe I'm about to be a grandparent. How could that have happened? How could that have happened? This life goes by so quickly. And, and, and our prayer is that we can have a life that makes a positive difference. The world would be a different place because God has put us in this place. And I want you to know that what makes it different is for those of us who are followers of Jesus to go into the places where we are and serve. And it's not by coercion. It's not by trying to force everybody uh, to, to my will. It is always by love and by example. And in this, it brings us to what biblical love is about. A life of service is always going to be a life that involves love for people. And the best definition I've ever heard of biblical love, agape love, is self-sacrificial giving. It's a giving of, of what we feel like it's mine sacrificially to bring blessing to others. Uh, Jesus engaged in it. And did his life make a difference in this world? Did you hear these testimonies in the baptism today? What, what made a difference in their lives? It's what Jesus did. And it was a life that made a difference not by coercion. A man on a cross coerces no one, right? A, a man on a cross can simply invite hurting, sinful people. Trust me, believe in me, and I am ready to cast your sins as far as east is from the west. I am ready to give my spirit to you if you will trust in me. A man on a cross invites those who believe to find blessing and eternal life through his offering of sacrifice. And he turns to us and says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. Now. I have been thinking so much now that I'm back in the pastorate. I'm just so glad 
But I keep thinking about what would a church like Lake Avenue Church look like? What would it be like if all of us this morning would actually take this seriously? And and live lives of service to one another. Come to church, all of us, looking for an opportunity to serve those God puts next to us or behind us or in front of us. Instead of always thinking, what did I get out of it and was it enjoyable? What, what would happen? What would happen if, if all of us would leave this place and say, Father, I don't quite know how to do this, but I want to use what you've given me to serve. Those who are hurting, those who are angry, those who are destroying their own lives. What would happen? Business people. I've, I've thought about this so much. What would happen if Christian business people who are CEOs or, or bosses would use that position of authority not to lord it over people, but to serve those underneath their care? Um, Jim Collins, do you ever read any of his material? Good to great, uh, build to last. It's amazing that even though these are not Christian books, he writes about organizations that are healthy and that lasts a long time. And he talks about two qualities of the leader. Humility and fierce resolve. Humility and fierce resolve. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus modeled and calls us to? What would businesses be like if those who work under their boss actually sought to serve? Uh, to make things go well. Uh, there's only one word that comes to my mind. I think those places would be beautiful. I think that if we looked at our families and our communities and our schools and our places of work and sought to serve, that we would leave behind us a little bit of the beauty of Christ. And that's my prayer for us. I would pray that you would think about this message as I've been trying to think about it for these many, many years and just to try to think, what does this look like in my life? Because we know that Jesus turned to his disciples, and I don't think it's just to them, but to us. And he says, you know this in the world that you live in. The people in the rest of the world use whatever they have to lord it over people. And when they have any influence and authority, they use it to exercise clout over them so that they get all the benefit and the others only bring benefit to them. And then he turns to us and he says, not so with you here at Lake Avenue Church. Uh, because among you, whoever will be great must be willing to be a servant. And who will be first must be willing to be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. In this paradoxical topography of the kingdom of God, the way up is down to his glory.